Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Well, it's good to be back with you again uh, to pick up the second now in the series of conversations on what it looks like to move towards emotional and spiritual health. You can't really have one without the other. That, that to follow Jesus, as we've been talking about over the last several weeks, heart, soul, mind, and strength, includes within it this holistic shalom, this holistic understanding that one or the other aspect needs to be balanced, uh, needs to be maintained in creative and co-creative tension with all of the rest. And so this journey towards becoming holistic disciples of Jesus, people who, when others look at us from the outside, our lives remind them of Jesus, the way that he lived, when, and we earn the right to be called Christians that involves moving then towards emotional health and maturity that is anchored in a contemplative, non-performance-based spirituality, namely a spirituality that is rooted in, not driven towards the love of God. That, that assumes and, and, and lives out of the center of God's love for us, not having to earn it, not having to prove it, but to let it be true. And I want to develop that a little bit more this morning as we start to think through how do we, how do we know ourselves? How do we know God? What does it look like for us to get beneath the surface that we keep pretty well hidden from everybody else and, frankly, often from ourselves, what does it look like to show up as we are beloved of God in our whole person and offer up, as Paul says in Romans 12, our whole bodies, everything about us as a living sacrifice, not just the bits that we've cleaned up and made suitable for for public presentation. Um, so I want to begin with this um, passage in Psalms, uh, Psalm 19, that takes us just kind of layer at a time to the depths of, of being, the depths of knowing, because the truth is we discover that it is only in knowing ourselves that we will know God. The reason God will not be known by the false self. It's only the true self that can know God, and we need to be very clear on this. It is only the true self that God empowers. He never empowers the false self. Well, those words, if they don't make sense to you right now, will as we walk through this conversation over the next several several weeks. Uh, and, and in fact, that 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 false self, that competitive earning, ego-driven, fear-driven self, that false self that we started to build maybe to survive the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in middle school uh, that cobbles together everybody's opinion of what we need to be or think or believe. Um, and then about high school, you discover, oh, I don't think that so much anymore. And you go to college and and discover that parts and bits and pieces fall off because you're not that anymore, but then you quickly barnacle something else back on so that you fit in with the new group. All of that false self may or may not reflect actually who we are 
at the center and might be the very thing that Jesus invites us to crucify. Remember, take up your cross and follow me. The implication being the cross is useful for putting to death things that need to die. That false self needs to die so that the true self, who we actually are, pure, if you will, loved by God, can emerge. So here's the passage in Psalm 19. You know it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard, but their voice goes out to the very ends of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom that comes out of his chamber and runs like a champion his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are, are righteous in keeping that uh, they are more precious than gold than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb, and by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Mm, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins that they don't rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think you probably noticed the layers of Revelation. We begin with this majestic portrait of God. The heavens declare the glory of God for anybody who's got eyes to see and ears to hear, to notice the wonder, the beauty, the power, the majesty of God, the beauty of God. These ideas emerge then and get drilled down even more fully into the, the Torah, the law of the Lord. So we have this general revelation by which we can know about God. Then we have the Torah, which gives us some of the characteristics of God that we can begin to put into practice. And as we do, we learn to walk in a certain way and our lives are shaped, again, by ideas about God. But if you followed along in that passage, you'll notice from verse seven on, there are six different parallel descriptors of law. Law, statutes, precepts, commands, fear, decrees, six of them. Not seven, not perfection, not completion, six. 
incomplete. So it's as if the psalmist is signaling by the structure of the psalm that this majestic picture of God in the universe, even when run through the filter of the more specific understanding of God in Torah, the way of the Lord, still gets us only partway there. Number six is a number of incompletion, imperfection. And so he prays, search my heart, oh God. See what's in there. Because I, I don't know. These faults are hidden from me. Certainly I'm aware of my willful transgressions, but there's a whole boatload of stuff that I don't even want to do, but that I do. I don't even know where it comes from. You're the only one that can help me know what's there. So you see, the Spirit searches our hearts, knows us, and in being known, we begin to know ourselves. I need the help of the Holy Spirit then to help me identify and then honor my inner reality that is not exposed to the light of the sun, not even really to the way of the Lord. It's possible to do the stuff at the outside. And as a good church kid, I know how to do that. So much so that most people wouldn't even notice that on the inside, there's nothing there. The lights are on, but nobody's home. It's hollow. It's brittle. Obedience is dutiful, not heartful. And I don't even know where my emotions come from because I've never been trained. I've never been invited to honor them, to learn from them, to let them serve their purpose, anger, sadness, fear, disappointment, joy, celebration, love. Blank slate. Search my heart. Oh, God, if you don't know me, I can't know me. I don't know what to do with guilt that constantly slides into shame. I don't know what to do with that, except to let it happen and then beat myself up for a long enough time until I can feel okay about feeling okay again. Maybe there's a different way, and that's what we're going to suggest. It is in being known by God that we know ourselves, and it is in knowing ourselves that we discover, as Paul says in Romans, that he's not high, that we need to bring him down. He's not low that we need to bring him up. The word is near you, even in your heart. He's there, meeting the true self, waiting to be discovered, if you will, waiting to be known through the knowing of ourselves. When Paul gets a hold of this idea in Ephesians chapter 3, his prayer for his friends in Ephesus captures this awareness. He says in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, this is the reason I kneel, a prayer of intensification before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, listen to this, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ can dwell in your hearts by faith. And I pray then that you, being rooted and grounded and established in love, can have capacity, have power 
together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To know this love, to know this love that surpasses knowing that you may be filled up to the measure of the fullness of God. That's Mount Everest right there. We are built for the fullness of God. What does it take for us to be filled with the fullness of God? A solid foundation that enables Christ to dwell in our hearts so that we may know that we are loved at the core. You see where we're going here? We know God, the fullness of God, by knowing, embracing, celebrating, accepting the core of who we are as beloved of the Father. This um, love of God is made real to us uh, by, this, by the Spirit of God, this foundation for being fully ourselves for Christ-likeness. Is, is made for us by the Spirit of God. So please notice, this isn't about feeling love. This is about knowing that we are loved, whether we feel like it or not. Candidly, some of us have, have, have feelings that have been mistrained for most of our lives. The family systems we came from, the ways of our early experiences have not trained us in feelings that are actually very helpful so we need to set those in a, in a way aside until they get recalibrated calibrated properly and can become actually useful for us again. But we don't dismiss them. We don't shame ourselves for them, for our anger, for our, our desire, for our, our fear. We don't undermine them because they are fundamentally the equipment God gave us to know him and to know ourselves. But they need to be calibrated through the lens of love. And that's what Paul is praying here, that, that, that we are invited to know God more than as a fact things about him. Remember, we talked about this last time, that, that believing is not a set of things to know. It's someone to fall in love with. That's what we're invited into here. This having heard the voice from the heavens, we choose to believe what it says and then press in to the reality that it creates for us. You'll notice here that Paul says, with all of God's holy people, with all of the saints, the truth is you will never know yourself apart from community. None of us have 360 vision. We all need a mirror to see what we look like at the back. That's what people are. To know us and be known in community is the only way that we will finally grow to maturity. So, this knowing of God involves knowing the self that God loves. Uh, my favorite passage on this is early in the ministry of Jesus. We pick it up at Matthew chapter uh, 3, where Jesus comes from the Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John pushes back, I need to be baptized by you, by you. And you come to me, and Jesus reframes John's baptism away from a baptism of repentance and preparation for Messiah to a baptism of the fulfillment of righteousness now that Messiah has come. And when he does that, John says, I get it. Okay. Then Jesus is baptized, 
And as he comes up out of the water, verse 16, at that moment, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending and resting on him like a dove. And a voice from the heavens said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Please notice that Jesus has not done one single thing to earn the love of the Father, the pride of the Father, the pleasure of the Father. He just has it. That serves as the foundation then for the rest of his life and his ministry, as it is to be also true for us. But then notice what happens. Verse 1 of the next chapter, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus said, it is written, you shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus replied, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this will I give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. This is a very familiar passage. Again, we've spent time in it multiple times over the last several years, but I think it's critical for this conversation on knowing self that we might know God and knowing God that we might know ourselves. You'll notice here, as I mentioned before, that Jesus hears the voice from the heavens before he doesn't have to perform his way into it. He doesn't have to earn it. He just has it. And that then is what gets tested by the devil in the desert. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is not a hero's moment for Jesus. This is a paradigmatic moment for all of us. Everybody gets a desert. It either seals things into you that need to remain or burns things out of you that need to be taken away. But here, as awkward as the text reads, God partners with the devil to test our grip on identity. Do we believe what God says about us to be true or not? Jesus prepared for this test by fasting. Notice he's reframed John's baptism from repentance to fulfillment. Likewise, he now reframes fasting from um, uh, uh, repentance and Uh, humbling to strength training and capacity building for the test that's coming. He doesn't, at the end of that journey, is not at his place of spiritual weakness, even though he's hungry. He's a place of spiritual strength, even though he's hungry. And it is that hunger, that physical thing that the enemy starts to pick at. Here, 
you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. In other words, prove it. You have capacity to do this. You can, you can do this. Prove it. And Jesus could have done it. But I think Jesus knew what some of us still have yet to discover. If you have to prove who you are, you don't believe it. You don't know it. You don't acknowledge it. So Jesus doesn't rise to the bait. He just says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus has been feasting on the word of God for 40 days and 40 nights. He knows what he heard. And it's not the word of God in the Old Testament only. It's the word of God from the heavens. He has heard the voice. He knows who he is at the gut of his being. He doesn't have to prove it to anybody. He lives out of the center of it. So then the devil takes him to the highest point of the city, the pinnacle of the temple. Cast yourself down. It's written, he's given his angels charge concerning you that you don't dash your foot against the stone. If you are the son of God, you can do this. Please notice Jesus gets understanding right away what this is about. Don't, you don't test the Lord your God. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Father. First temptation, if you are the Son of God, turn stones into bread, you prove it. Second temptation, if you are the Son of God, make God prove it. And Jesus says, nah, if I have to make him prove it, he and I both know that I never heard him in the first place. The devil gives up on that language, shifts gears a little bit and invites him to the high place on the mountain and looks over the kingdoms of the world. You remember that Jesus came to reclaim for the kingdom what we had sold out in Genesis chapter 3. The price that Jesus will pay to regain the kingdoms of the world is the cross. And here, at the very beginning of his ministry, the enemy is promising him what he came for without the price that he has to pay to get it, without the cross, without having to pay the price of his identity. I think it's clear Jesus sees through <laughs> the temptation. I can't avoid the cross. I only worship one God because there is only one, and then banishes the Satan. The enemy will use and be used, if I can use that language without offending anybody, be used to continually test our grip on identity in these three areas. Do you have to prove it? Does God have to prove it in order for you to believe it? Or do you want to avoid the pain of being who you are? Because there is pain in your identity. There's a price to pay for being who you are and doing what you came to do. It is the price of submission to the will of one who aligns you to his core being. You only know God by knowing the pain of knowing yourself. So we come to this deep awareness uh, in this in this. Uh, uh, a moment where the voice from the heavens becomes the definer 
of our identity. And then it gets tested uh, because it's critical for us to recognize we, 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 we need some help to remember who we are, to know who we are, and to live out of the center of who we are. We cannot disconnect identity from, excuse me, let me say it this way. We have to disconnect identity from anything other than the voice from the heavens. You're not who your mama says you were. You're not who your husband or wife say you were. You're not who your roommate say you are. You're not who your coach says you were. You're not who fill in the blanks says you were. Who are the voices that are pummeling identity into your head? Some of them might be the Satan, those in opposition, those who don't know the truth, but yell louder than the truth. That's why you've got to anchor deeply in the voice. The false self, the the ego self, the self created to survive. Middle school that needs now to die so that the true self can be empowered and can know God. The self that believes I am what I do. Anybody recognize that one? I am my performance. I am my job description. When people ask, who you are, we tend to answer by what we do. That's misplaced identity. Or I am um, uh, because I have. Oh, so now all of a sudden I'm measured by the car I drive, the shoes I wear, the clothes that I wear, the situations that I hang out with. I am what I have. I am what I possess. We have a whole industry devoted to shaping identity built around owning, possessing, having, wearing. Mm. We're mannequins, well-clothed, but plastic. Or the self that needs to be crucified that believes I am what others think of me the people-pleasing, the invite-me-in, the include-me, the make-me-feel-apart, the I'm better than you. By comparison, we do it all kinds of different ways, right? In, in which we, we constantly delegate identity to anybody else that looks like a friendly face and sometimes even some unfriendly ones in the hopes that figure, we'll figure it out. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to learn who you are from me. I want you to learn who you are from being with me. I want you to listen to the same voice that I listen to. And I want you to believe it. We know who we are by knowing God, who is at the center of who we are. So the key here, the task of becoming human is partnership with the Holy Spirit. He's the only one. Who, who knows who we really are. Uh, this is clear from Romans 8. He, he distinguishes between that false self, that, that, that fake self, and, and the shadow self. Those are not the same thing. The, the, the false self is all of those pieces that we've cobbled together, but the shadow is the parts that we don't like very much, but that are still part of us. This is where our re- emotions reside. I don't like being an angry person. So I'm just going to relegate my anger to the sidelines. What if that anger is a gift that is part of the shadow, that is part of authentically who you are, that drives your passion for justice? 
you don't want to get rid of that. In fact, you best stay out because you don't know what's trash and what's treasure. You don't know what needs to go and what needs to stay. It's the Holy Spirit that has to take those desires that we maybe morph illegitimately into lust, but are actually genuine longing for connection. The shadow is part of who we are. The false self has to be taken away. Do you understand why Jesus says, I'm not trusting you to do this heavy lifting here. I want you to know yourself by knowing me. So that's what we're invited into. Uh, Anger, desire, pleasure, fear, sadness, silliness. Maybe that's all part of the gift that we offer to God for his usefulness. That's the invitation. Know yourself that you might know God. Get underneath the surface. Get underneath the uh, surface of that iceberg. 75, 80, 90% below the surface. What's there? Meet God at that place and embrace the gift of being who you are as beloved of the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. Um, Clearly, we don't know what we're doing here. So we invite you to teach us ourselves. And in learning ourselves, enable us more fully to know and to be intimate with you. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, friends. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.